Welcome, everybody, into Down the Line, the tennis show for you on Blaze Radio. I'm your host, Carson Breber, and this has been a surprisingly fascinating week in tennis already. Now, we're off to a super early start, but obviously, the number one storyline coming into the week was Kim Kleisters making her return to tennis after over seven years away from the sport, and I was 99.9% sure that that was how it was going to open today's show. And then came along Carlos Alcaraz. At 16 years old, Alcaraz beat world number 41 Albert Ramos Vinolas 7-6-4-6-7-6 in 3 hours 36 minutes. This was the second marathon match already in Rio. Uh, Alcaraz got a wild card into the 500 that is Rio. He's number 406 in the world right now. And of course, the first comparison everyone draws here is to Rafa Nadal because you're talking about, you know, Rafa won his first tour match at 15 years and 10 months old. Alcaraz is just 16 Alcaraz even addressed this. He was talking about how he thinks that, you know, Rafa was his hero, but he thinks that his game more mirrors Federer's. I'm not sure if his game mirrors Federer. He's not quite as attacking now. He has the ability to attack, but when you're talking about the historical significance of what he's done, he is the youngest player since Gasquet in 2003 to be a top 50 player. And you got to remember the significance of that because Gasquet was a phenom. He, a phenom. he was a multiple-time junior slam winner, and everyone knew that he was going to come in. And you could argue that his career, even as a guy that you know spent a decent amount of time in the top 10, was a disappointment because of how hyped up he was coming in. Well, Alcaraz hasn't even had time to really establish that hype yet, but... What he did was absolutely incredible. So you look at him and he looks like a 16-year-old. He's got a baby face. He's got this hair that doesn't quite make sense. It's not the smoothest. But he's 5'11", he's 159, and he's coached by Juan Carlos Ferrero, who is the rare example of someone that at that size was able to succeed. Ferrero, of course, being a world number one at, I believe, 6'160", so almost identical measurements. And Alcaraz is already... Highly accomplished, uh, for his age at least, beat Yannick Sinner last year at 15 years old. Keep in mind that Sinner is one of the prize jewels of this younger generation of tennis talents right now. And, and Alcaraz beat him three full years younger. He started this year 14-1 and in Futures tournaments with two titles and a finals appearance. He won his first two tournaments of the year, losing two total sets. And when you look at how he actually plays, he's got great touch. He's willing to pull out a drop shot at basically any moment, and he converts at it with really a pretty high rate because he's got beautiful touch on that. He's got great control. Sometimes he'll loop the ball, and he gives himself time to get back into points, and I like that. He can play really solid defense in that way. He's got good hands, and that's where you see, I think, that he's just such a natural tennis talent. It's the all-around game. He's consistent from the ground, but he can flatten it out when he takes the ball on the rise, and I think in particular his backhand has potential to be great. When he flattens out that two-hander, it is a powerful shot, and it is a beautiful shot, and he moves well. And yes, the serve isn't a weapon right now. I think we've seen remarkably, you know, for two of the three best players of this generation, in Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic, their serve has never been a weapon. So you can overcome that in modern tennis. And also, he's 16 years old. So his next match is against world number 116 Federico, Federico Correa, which is totally a winnable match. And Alcaraz, this is so exciting because... You could argue that we're in sort of a dead spot of the tennis year where be- between the Australian and the Indian Wells-Miami stretch, there's not that many big tournaments going on. We do have Dubai coming up next week, which is a 500 like Rio and Rotterdam, but gets a better draw. But this is a thrilling story, and he is absolutely a guy to watch going forward. And what's so interesting is 
We've seen this generation of guys that have been around for a while, and you could argue that they've been a disappointment. You start with maybe Team, who's 26 now and is really coming into his game now at 26 years old, making his first final outside of the French, making just a second quarterfinal out of the French at the Australians. Zverev, just peeking through, and he's only 22, but he's been around for a solid four years in the top 10 conversation. And now we have these new guys emerging like Tsitsipas and Medvedev, and Ojal Yassim and Shapovalov, who, you know, except for Medvedev, those guys are 21 and younger. And now we have even this other generation with Sinner at 18 and with Alcaraz at 16. This is exciting for tennis and maybe, unfortunately, for team in particular. He might have just been born in the wrong era and it might just be a few years difference because Alcaraz is never going to really compete with the big three except maybe the first couple years of his career. So when we're talking about his ceiling, I'm not comfortable even discussing that yet because he's 16 and we've seen one match at the tour level, but he looks great, and he's got a great all-around game, and I think that he's tremendously talented, and it's awesome for the sport. So now let's talk about what, as I acknowledged earlier, I thought was going to be the story of the week. Kim Kleisters came back to tennis. Kim Kleisters, who has been in the Hall of Fame for two years because she was retired for so long, she goes to 8-6 in the second set tiebreak against Muguruza, who, of course, just made the finals at the Australian. Really impressive. Kleisters may not be in peak shape physically, but just hits such a great ball. She hits such a hard ball with such control, and when she flattens it out, it just made me think more than anything about how much incredible tennis we have missed out on from her because she retired, obviously, twice. Retired so young. I think that with the match she played, she beats more opponents than not, which is incredible when you consider she, she's been retired for over seven years. Also incredible, she's still two years younger than Serena Williams. So... I thought that we should do a little bit of a legacy thing here on Kim Kleisters because she was already an all-time great player. Even with such an abbreviated career, you look at the resume, 41 titles is the 14th most of the Open Era, 4 Grand Slams, 8 Slam Finals, and after she turned 23, which is the age at which she retired for the first time, she played in just 10 Slams. After 23, she won 4 of them. 40% of the Slams she was in, she won. She was so phenomenally consistent when she could actually stay out on the court, and she was so absurdly talented and successful. Three year-end titles, 20 weeks at number one. And this is incredible. A winning record against Henin, Venus, Sharapova, Lindsay Davenport, Moresmo, Lina. Basically, every relevant competitor from her era, or I guess you could argue the two eras of tennis that she really operated in with the Moresmo era and then more of the Lina era... She had a better, she had a winning record against everyone except for Serena. She was a marvel. 80.5% winning percentage is 10th best in the open era. She has a top 10 winning percentage on clay, hard, grass, and carpet. All four surfaces, she is top 10 all-time in winning percentage and 81% winning at slams. She finished six years in the top five and made 16 slam semifinals in just 35 tournaments. And so based off of this Abbreviated career, Tennis.com had her as the 14th greatest women's tennis player of the Open Era. And there were some really incredible parts to her story. I mean, 2003, she becomes world number one in both singles and doubles. As I mentioned, then 2007, retires at just 23. 2009, comes back, enters the U.S. Open unranked. She did not have a ranking to her name and wins the whole tournament, which is unprecedented in tennis history, beating Venus, Serena, and Wozniacki on the way to doing so, and then repeats the title next year. She was, of course, a three-time U.S. Open champion. And I just think of her as one of the great players of my childhood. And when I heard that she was 36, that just did not compute to me, because she was 
she was of that era with Henan and with Prime Venus. And that is such a that is such a thing of the past now. But what's incredible is, you know, Henan also followed a similar legacy and then she retired twice and she was done before 30. So these are two real all-time greats, ironically, both from Belgium of I believe the exact same age. And they're both younger than Serena and they've been out of the game for almost a decade. And I think that these are two players that really could have pushed her. And I wonder, not to discredit Serena in any way, but I wonder if she is the same all-time dominant player if Hennen and Kleister stick around. Because Kleister's was a year removed from winning a slam when she retired. I mean, she was still very relevant in tennis. And I believe the reason she retired was because she didn't want to be uh, playing tennis when her daughter was in school, which I think is... It's a beautiful thing to prioritize your family. I don't think that we've ever seen a man do that in the history of sports. And I think that it's sad that we lost out on such a great talent um, because of that. So it's great to see her back. I don't know how long this is going to last for. I don't know how good she's going to be. I have a decent degree of confidence in her because talent does not fade. Talent does not die. And you saw that out there against Muguruza. And that's one of the highlights of the week. We have the return of a long-retired all-timer, and we have the emergence of a young gun who is doing something that hasn't been done in almost 20 years in, in Alcaraz. So this is, this is a fun week for the sport, especially considering we don't have any major tournaments going on. We're going to get to all the stuff that's been going on this week outside of those two main storylines on the other side of the break, but first, we're going to just recap some of the big takeaways from last week. So, of course, Casper Ruud wins his first title, and if you are a betting man or woman, I hope you followed my lead because I said after the first round of that tournament that Rude was my pick to win outright. Now, I also picked Daniil Medvedev and Milos Raonic to win their tournaments, and they both lost first round. But let's neglect that and acknowledge my genius for a moment. Eight seed, he never won a title, and I have been on the Rude bandwagon since before this year. One of my bold predictions before the season was that he would have a Diminar-type season and that he pushes for the top 20, wins a couple titles, and at 21 years old, I think that he is in many ways on the trajectory to do that. He's 29 and 15 on clay since the start of last year. I mean, that is serious, a serious winning percentage. And I think that you see his all-around game, his ability to just grind guys up. He's going to be really good. And when we were looking ahead to Rio, it looked like he was lining up for a quarterfinals matchup against Team, which would have been awesome, and then goes ahead and loses this week in the first round to Gianluca Majer. I hope that I'm saying his name right. I've barely ever heard of this guy. He's 128 in the world. Loses to him in straight sets, which is so disappointing because he just passed up his father for the highest-ranked Norwegian ever, Christian Rudd, and has shown so much promise after, I wouldn't say he had a rocky start to the year, but lost first round at the Australian in five to Jarosimov. 7-6 in the fifth set was a tough loss. Gets into his element on clay, shines, and then had another opportunity to make an impact here and unfortunately went down. A guy that is on absolute fire and is now taking a little bit of time, maybe to cool down, but he might come back just as hot. Gail Monfi entered this year 8-21 in career finals. He's now 2-0 in finals this year, has won 20 straight sets, and obviously just came out with the title in Rotterdam. Stormed through Felix Ojalia, seam four and two in the final of that tournament, and it was really good to see Felix make the finals because he got off to a rough start of the year. But Monfino, at 33 and a half years old, might be playing the best tennis of his life. He had never won multiple titles in a year before this, and now he's done it by February. And this is another guy that was 
a a legendary junior. I believe he won three junior slams in, in his final year before turning pro. He was dominant. He has always been acknowledged as one of the great talents and entertainers in the sport. And for him to be reaching what might be his peak at this age, I think part of what it speaks to is the nature of modern sports and that longevity is better than ever before. We see that with the big three more than we see with really anything else in any sport and especially in tennis history. For an era of guys to have a success like this extend into their mid and late 30s in the case of Federer, we've never seen it before. So Monfino is exactly tied with Matteo Berrettini in points, and you don't see that often. He's officially ranked ninth and Berrettini is eighth. Uh, but I think he's a dark horse to make a push in the American hardcourt swing. He didn't even play Miami last year, so that's an opportunity for some free points. And could he make the semis of any of these? I think he absolutely could. Now, am I ever going to pick him to win? No, because Novak Djokovic exists, and he's hard to pick against, especially at Indian Wells, where he's, what, a a five-time champ, a six-time champ, a lot of times champ. So he's definitely got to look out for, though, this year. And he was a guy that I sort of, I was a little bit dismissive of coming into this year. I made my prediction that Shapovalov and Felix would finish uh, at at 9-10 and in the world or 8-10 and in the world, something like that. They would sneak into the top 10, and I was like, was Monfi going to hold them off? Is Bautista Agut going to hold them off? Well, Monfi looks like he wants to hold them off because he's been playing awesome, and he actually beat Felix, of course, as I mentioned. Uh, the last result to look at, Kyle Edmund won the New York Open over Andreas Seppi. Uh, this was a terrible tournament overall. You have seeds going down early. The seeds weren't that compelling to begin with, but it's good to see Edmund climb back into the top 50 because he's easily one of the 50 most talented players in tennis. I mean, Big serve, big forehand, fun to watch. And he had a brutal eight-match losing streak late last year that knocked him out of that spot. So I'm glad to see that he's back. I'm glad to see him get a title under his belt. And um, that's really all this tournament was relevant for. It was not a great draw. So on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about a chance for redemption from Daniil Medvedev. We're going to be looking at some of the impressive results from the Americans and talking about all the cool stuff that has happened already in this week's tournaments, you're listening to Down the Line on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. Welcome back, everybody, into Down the Line. So, what we're going to be talking about first is Daniil Medvedev, because... He had a disappointing exit, lost his first match at Rotterdam to Vasek Pospisil, who really played a great match and has obviously been off to an awesome start to this season, but that's disappointing. He also lost in the fourth round to Stan Wawrinka in the Australian, and right now, by ranking, is closer to Stefano Tsitsipas than team. It's, it's, he's five points closer, but still. Medvedev is a guy that I thought was going to crack the top two in the world this year because he was so phenomenal last year down the stretch in the hardcourt swing. And he has not been off to that start this year, so it's nothing hugely um, concerning, but I think this is a great opportunity for him at Marseille, where he is the one seed. Three of his seven career titles are indoor. Marseille, of course, is indoor. He has a big matchup coming up in the second round against Yannick Sinner, which I think could be a great one because Sinner is a phenomenally entertaining, talented player. It's going to be interesting to see how he tries to deal with Medvedev because Medvedev's going to give him a lot of junk. He's going to give him some flat balls. His serve's going to be tough to return. And Sinner, I don't know how much he'll be able to dictate. So this is going to be really a match to look for going forward. And Medvedev, you really hope that he comes out with this title, but it is a tough draw. And this is something else that really stands out to me. You know, there's such a a discrepancy in the quality of the draw between Rio and... And Marseille, and 
Yet Rio is a 500 and Marseille is a 250. The draw at Marseille has seven top 20 guys. Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Gofan, Shapovalov, Kachanov, who lost already but still was in the draw, Benoit Paire and Felix Ogiel-Yassim are all in Marseille, while team is the only top 20 player in Rio. And, I mean, what this really shows is, you know, there are so many factors other than points that go into these decisions. Guys want to go to France. Guys don't want to go to Brazil. And I wonder if that's something. And also, I don't think guys want to play on clay at this point in the season when it's like, well, we're about to be on hard and the relevant tournaments we're playing are going to be on hard. So if you're a guy like Dominic Team, where clay is your forte and you see a draw like this at a 500, you'll take it. But if you're Medvedev, where, you know, obviously he prefers to play on hard over clay every day of the week and he gets to, I guess, a preferable location, he'll take that. Rio, the two seed is Lajovic, who is the 23. And if you're looking at, 23rd ranked player in the world, and if you're looking at team's route to a title, he's got to beat Payan Lajovic. I mean, those are the semifinals and final matchups as far as the projection, and that's an easy 500 points for him, and you cannot overestimate how significant that is. That's almost like making the finals of a 1,000. So I always think that that's a really interesting thing to look at, and I think we've seen, you know, I talked about this earlier with the Pune draw, how incredibly weak that draw was for a 250. It was more like a challenger draw, because guys don't want to go to India. So this is something maybe for the ATP to consider when they place these tournaments. I understand maybe there's never a great time for a 500 on clay. Although I would argue maybe a good time would be you move up Indian Wells and you move up Miami by a week and you put Rio after them and leading up into the European clay court swing. I understand that location-wise it's still inconvenient, but at least you're playing on the right surface. So... I don't know if that's something that they'll examine going forward. Um, taking a quick switch over to WTA, because that's actually probably where the most relevant tournament is going on. They have, they're playing in Dubai this week, and it's really a loaded draw. You have Halep, you have Kvitova, and yet unfortunately, the three through five seeds in Zvitolina, Bencic, and Kennan all lost first round. And this is just an issue for women's tennis at this point. I get that this isn't a blockbuster tournament. Those aren't blockbuster names. Kennan, you could argue, is on the verge of that. Svitolina and Bencic, though, are perennial top 10 players at this point, if there is such a thing as a perennial top 10 player in women's tennis these days. Osaka is barely a top 10 player at this point. You need to have consistent stars. And I think some people will contend that, yes, the mayhem is fun, and maybe I'm being overly critical because this isn't a big tournament. And it's fine to have upsets that you know, non-slams. I just think this doesn't happen in the men's game for the most part, and especially not with multiple people like this. And maybe I'm wrong because there was some, there's definitely some craziness happening last week, but I don't know. I just think you want to have reliable stars you can count on, and they don't have that right now. Unfortunately, Amanda Nisimova also lost in the first round in three sets to Strikova, which is just disappointing because I'm such a believer in Anisimova's talent. She's only 18, but I think that she has number one potential. I think that she's really special like that. She's got such a beautiful all-around game. And I want to see her perform more consistently after losing in the first round at the Australian, too. I want to see her be, you know, play like a top 20 player. Perform consistently. Win big matches. That's what I want from her this year. And if we're looking ahead to big matchups, we have Ons Jabur against Simona Halep in the, in the second round. And, of course, Jabour made the quarters at the Australian, and was pretty thrilling there. Ended Caroline Wozniacki's career, unfortunately, because it would have been fun to see Wozniacki keep going, but she's got a big, powerful game, whereas Halep, of course, is the ultimate control defense. Although she doesn't... I guess the ultimate control defense would be like Agneska Radwanska, or even Wozniacki, you might argue, more than Halep. Halep can 
can hit a nice, clean, flat ball. But that's going to be a fun matchup to watch stylistically, and it's two relevant names right now. So we go back to the men's. Of course, Delray Beach is going on this week, which is a nice opportunity for the American men, especially with Nick Kyrgios pulling out because of a wrist injury. This is, of course, unfortunate news. You always want to see Kyrgios play. Always, even if he's acting like a brat, even if he's not bringing any effort, that's still entertaining. And it's really remarkable how big of a name he is outside of the sport. I mean, everyone knows who Nick Kyrgios is. I shouldn't say everyone. A lot of uh, non-tennis fans are still familiar with Nick Kyrgios more than, like, say, a Medvedev, who's a far better player, because of his antics. So he's certainly relevant. But what this does do is it opens up an opportunity for a bunch of Americans. There are 11 Americans in the draw at Delray Beach, including Tommy Paul, who he was supposed to play. And they're off to a 9-2 and start in the first round. The only people to lose were Fritz, who was the three seed and was actually the highest seeded American in the tournament who lost to Cameron Norrie, which was a little bit disappointing. Uh, and then Kozlov lost, but he pushed the seeded Umber to three sets, which I think for Kozlov, considering how much of a disappointment his career has been overall, if we're being honest, after he was a junior slam champion and he has done nothing at all in the ATP, um, good to see him be competitive with a legitimate player in Umber who's who's been great these past few months. So day one was great. The Americans went 4-0. Ryan Harrison won. Tiafo won. Brandon Nakashima won, and Mackie McDonald won. And we're going to talk about Nakashima a, a good deal, but we'll we'll give rounds and we'll give some acknowledgments to the other guys first. So Mackie, that was his first tour-level match win since his surgery took him out for, you know, seven, almost eight months. Uh, it's great to see him back winning. He won a couple matches at uh, the Challenger last week, but it's great to see him win on the tour level at Delray Beach, where he had the best tournament in his career last year, beating Juan Martin Del Potro on the way to a semifinal um, run. Jack Sock won his second match since 2018. Isn't that a remarkable thing to hear? This is a former top 10 guy. He was the top-ranked American. He beat defending champion Radu Albat, and he had been 1-9 in his last 10 matches, had Sock. That's including challengers after he had that weird thumb injury that kept him out for about seven months. We talked about this on last week's show about just how strange his arc has been, but Good to see him pick up a win, because he's obviously a talented player, and he's only 27. He still has so much career left ahead of him, and I hope he sticks around. I hope he doesn't just flame out and quit the sport, because he's really entertaining when he's at his best. And then Noah Rubin won, just his eighth career match. Again, so disappointing when you consider the hype that was coming out with him when he was in his late teens. He's 23 now. He's ranked 269 in the world, but he won. So let's not be overly critical. Let's be positive. I think, though, the biggest star from all of this. The person who is, if you will, the winner of all of this is Brandon Nakashima. 18 years old. He's ranked 290 in the world. Played his freshman year of college at Virginia last year and now is not returning as uh, going pro, but he was 17-5 and five as a freshman. He's the number four junior in the world, excuse me, was the number four junior in the world, was a junior U.S. Open semifinalist, and has been off to a productive start to the year. He won a Futures Tournament last month, and in Dallas at the Challenger, which is, you know, one of the better challengers on tour, beat Ryan Harrison, beat Tomic, and then lost 7-5 in the third set to Tiafo, who said that he was definitely a, a fan of his game. When you're looking at Nakashima, we're not talking about a world number one talent here, but whenever we have a young American that actually converts, and interestingly enough, doesn't have the hype of a Harrison or a Rubin or a Kozlov or going back to a Donald Young, doesn't have any of that hype, 
but actually produces at a young age, that's fun to see. Uh, it's a limited sample size. It's not a huge amount of production, but it's a win on tour, and that's worth something. He moves well. He's got good strokes. He can flatten out and attack from the ground, and really, I want to see more of him. So I hope that he can extend this run, but I really hope that he gets a wild card Indian, into Indian Wells because I will be at that tournament, and I would love to see him in person, and I think it would be great for the Americans to have someone else to put our hope in so he can let us down at the end of the day. But he's a talented player. Speaking of a hope that did not let their people down, one of the most fascinating matches of the year thus far, easily. Tiago Seboth Wild beat Alejandro Davidovich Fokina with two of the great names on tour. Two of the great names on tour. Seboth Wild won 5 7, 7 6, 7 5 in three hours, 50 minutes, saved three match points. For those of you who don't know, he is Brazilian. He was playing in Rio. Davidovich was underhand serving. And yes, these two guys are not relevant at all. It was the number 206 in the world in Saboth Wild against the number 90 in the world in Davidovich Fokina. But it's fun to have a match like this, especially when one of the guys is, you know, has the home crowd behind him. And it's just not often that you see that. Now, we're taking this opportunity to shout out some guys that are probably not going to get a bunch of attention from the mainstream tennis media, if you will, if that, if that even exists. But Sun Wu Kwan. I'm here to talk about Sun Wu Kwan because he now has an above 500 career record on tour, which is actually pretty incredible when you think about it. I was trying to find like the best guy that has a below 500. My mind went right away to like Feliciano Lopez, Ivo Karlovic. They're both barely above it, but this is an accomplishment even with a small sample size. He's now four and three on the year after beating second uh, after beating the seeded Adrian Monterino in the first round. He's got Ryan Harrison up next, and let me tell you, if I'm putting my money on one of them, I'm going to put my money with Sun Wu Kwan which will then be his third straight quarterfinal of the year. He beat Raonic in New York and then lost 7-5 in the third set breaker to Kyle Edmund, which is a very legitimate performance. I think Raonic also aced him like 32 times, and he still came out with the win. And he reached the quarters in Pune before he lost 6-4 in the third to Jirasimov, who's off to a good start to the year. He's 5'11", 159, not physically imposing, but... He's got a nice all-around game. He gets a bunch of balls back. He's controlled. And like all these guys, he can attack when he needs to. It's probably not his preference, but he's got a good solid game from the ground. And I think when you're looking at the Asian continent, with Hyun Chung now having been so injury-riddled for this past year plus, he's the top-ranked Korean player, is Kwon. And with Kane Shikori hurt, he's the second-highest uh, active Asian player as far as ranking. So, obviously, that is a massive continent. Kane Shikori has brought... Uh, tennis as a sport to the continent of Asia on a whole nother level. And Quan is never going to be a star of that caliber, but it's good to have relevant Asian players, I think, for the sport. So it's been great to see him succeed, and it's been great to see him consistently perform. Not the most relevant guy, but he's doing well. A couple things to watch for. Dominic Team got pushed to three sets by Felipe Meleghini Rodriguez Alves, uh, who is a young Brazilian which was just kind of weird to see in the first round. And then we have a really exciting match coming up in the second round at Marseille. We have Marin Cilic versus Denis Shapovalov in the second round. This is a dangerous spot for Shapovalov because he's 3-6 and six on the year. He's kept his top 15 spot, but Cilic really has been in great form. So uh, this is definitely going to be one to look for going forward. Two attacking, tremendously talented players. So that's going to wrap things up here on Down the Line. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed. This has been a really fun, exciting week in tennis, and obviously Alcaraz is the guy to watch for going forward, so if you have a chance to catch his next match, make sure you do. Other than that, I've been Carson Brever. You're listening to Blaze Radio on blazeradioonline.com.